You're listening to audio from Kingsway Christian Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit kingswaychurch.org. Good morning, everybody. My name is Matt Nickerson, and it is so good to be here with you today. And I can't wait to be with you live in person next week on July 12th for our first Sunday back, starting this new series called Stay Salty. When uh, we were raising three little boys, my kids are 11, 9, and 6. And when they were younger, younger, they loved Thomas the Train stuff. And there was this one Thomas the Train, his name is Salty. If you ever watch Thomas, you have kids, you know that. And it was one of those ones where you push the button and it talks and then it makes the train go. And he would do his his pirate voice and he'd say, ha 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 I'm salty. And it would always freak me out because Rachel and I'd be sitting on the couch, kids are in bed, relaxing, half asleep, zoning out to something on the TV. And all of a sudden the electric static in the house would kick up and he'd kick on and he'd start talking and going on his own. And it would always kind of freak me out. Like why is salty doing that? Well, I want to get to this idea of salty, this idea of staying salty. Are you salty? Here we go. Jesus, Matthew chapter five, verse 13, the very first part, he says this, you are the salt of the earth. What in the world does Jesus mean? This is used so often by Jesus, an analogy used so often that it's actually repeated in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. In fact, Paul even picks it up later, and he wasn't one of the original 12. This whole idea of salt is a really big deal in Jesus' day. In fact, the whole idea of a soldier comes from the word saldair. Saldair, you can hear that over time becomes soldier. And the word sal is the word salt. This is actually where we get our word salary because Roman soldiers were sometimes paid in salt, which is weird for us today because salt is not hard to imagine. We tend to think of table salt. You just pick up a little salt shaker. You maybe, depending on whether you like it freshly ground or whether you just tip it upside down, that's what we have in mind. You think of McDonald's where you rip a packet open and you dump that bad boy out on your french fries or potato or whatever it is. But that's not how it was in Jesus' day. In fact, even in some parts of the world today, salt was rare and hard to come by, but so critical for many, many reasons, many, many parts of life in Jesus' day. So we're going to look at today just one of the meanings, one of the reasons why salt was relevant in Jesus' day. We'll talk about some of the others as we go. And the most important one would have to do with preservation of meat, of life. So if you were to have an animal, they didn't have refrigeration systems like we have today. In fact, much of the world doesn't have big refrigerators or sometimes two refrigerators or a freezer and a refrigerator like some of you have able to stockpile for quarantine. And much of the world today, they'll often have a very small refrigerator able to hold just enough food for a day, a meal or two, maybe a a day or two's worth of food. And you go by the market and you pick up food each day. In some parts of the world where they don't have refrigeration systems like in Jesus' day, salt was a critical way to preserve meats. So what you could do, and I actually watched a video on how they do this, but it was way too detailed to go into all of it. They would take out like a, a jar, uh, think of like an, an old, I don't know, you know, like pitcher of some sort. They could take the meat that's left over they didn't eat, and they would pack it in there, and they would literally dump salt in there, pack more in there, dump more salt in, pack more in there, dump more salt in, and then pour water as it goes, creating this brine, and it would preserve the meat. The meat can last up to months this way. Then when you bring it out and you want to cook it, you got to rinse it off first and soak it in water and try to get some of the salt out, but the salt has flavor, and it adds life to the meat. And that's exactly what Jesus is trying to get to in this context. 
When he says, you are the salt of the earth, he's saying, when you come to Jesus and his life has touched your life, you now have a meaning. You have a purpose on this earth. And your meaning and your purpose has to do with preserving the goodness of God on the earth. In fact, Mark Moore, a friend of mine, he says it this way. In other words, without you, life would be worse. Imagine with me for a moment, all over the world, every Christian suddenly disappeared from the world, just gone. What would it be like? Now, obviously there'd be some, you know, there'd be some basketball players if it's the middle of an NBA game, it wouldn't be there anymore. Maybe some people driving on the road, there'd be car accidents. But I'm not talking about like the tragedy of that specific moment. I'm talking about what would the trajectory of the world be like over the next 90 days, six months, 12 months, whatever it might be, if there were no more Christians in the world whatsoever. Now, maybe you're sitting at home and you don't really believe in God. You're not sure about this Jesus thing or the church at all. To you, that doesn't seem like that big of a deal. In fact, maybe you're sitting there and you are so tired of Christians telling everybody what to do or what to think or how to feel or whatever your perspective about Christians are. Because I got to tell you, sometimes Christians love to share their opinion with everybody else. But that's not the story, the whole story. The reality is, Throughout the last 2,000 years, since Jesus has died on the cross and rose from the dead, Christians have been at the center of many of the best things that have happened in all of culture. Did you know that? Just consider this list for a moment. And there's no magic in this list, but it's just some things I wrote down. Did you know the public education actually came from Christians? The whole idea that people need to be educated so they can understand more, so they can work better, more effectively, and have better jobs— came from Christians putting together systems and trying to educate people. In fact, all over the world today, there are Christians starting schools, just like our grade school here, trying to do that very thing, to educate people and to educate them, honestly, a lot of times in who God is and what he's like and what he wants to do in the world. Book publications. Did you know that many of the publishing companies in the world began with Christians originally trying to print the Bible and other teachings and catechisms in order for people to know it, but then those publications became something where other people could get access to books and education. In fact, it's been said that St. Patrick saved civilization. There's actually a book with that title that I was started reading. And the whole idea is there were people burning books and burning history, and it was Patrick's monastery systems that he had put together that started hand copying those books to keep them and preserve culture and history for all of us. Many breakthroughs in medicines have come from Christians believing that all of life has value and therefore we ought to fight for those lives to stay alive as long as possible that they might come to know God. Hospitals, have you ever noticed how many hospitals have the word Baptist, Methodist, or saint attached to them? Look all around the United States and the world. And you know, the entire prison system in America was built on a Christian concept. I'm not trying to say it works or doesn't work. That's not the argument I'm trying to make. I'm only simply saying what we have, what we call a, a penitentiary system, was built on the idea of penitence, that somebody could actually pay for their crime, repent, and change and become useful in society again. At one point, Paul actually writes in the New Testament, and he says, look, if you're a thief, stop stealing, get a job, so you have something to contribute. And Christians read texts like that and became convicted and said, we need to help people find a way to get back on their feet again. Hospice, 
all around the United States and many times were created by Christians. In fact, even in Martin Luther's day, when the bubonic plague was raging, he encouraged Christians and ministers to stay in the city when everybody else was running to try to get away, to care for people. And many Christians stayed behind to care for those who were sick. And the gospel took off and spread as a result. It's been said that Martin Luther's daughter actually got the bubonic plague and ended up dying from it. But by and large, history records that Christians died at a much, much slower rate, and yet they were the ones running into the pain instead of away from. Life care centers, orphanages. In fact, when AIDS was blowing up in Africa, many Christians over here in America took a stance against immorality and wanted nothing to associate with them. But in Africa, it was the churches and the Christians. In fact, you look at Ethiopia, it was the churches serving and meeting the needs of people when others were afraid to do anything, churches and Christians stepped up. How about Extreme Makeover Home Edition? Habitat for Humanity has been doing this for decades, decades. And I could give example after example after example, but I'll just give one last one. A friend of mine and the leader of one of our mission organizations, Care India, a guy named Bobby John, and Bobby and I got to sit down and talk and do an interview once. And Bobby was telling me that God really began to get his heart and stir his heart when there was an earthquake that hit Pakistan. And I'm no expert in the, the, the issues that exist between Indians and Pakistanis, but I know that they don't always get along. But he dropped everything and literally rode his, his motorcycle hours to go up there and serve in their hour of need. And we see this consistently. This is what Christians do. When everybody else is running away from the fire, Christians are to run into the fire. When everybody else is afraid and concerned and scared of protecting their life, Christians run into it and say, how do I be a salt and a light? Now, this whole idea of being a salt in Matthew chapter 5, verse 13, actually comes out of what we call the Beatitudes, and we see this beginning in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. This is a famous sermon Jesus preached, probably preached many, many times. It's probably one of his most famous sermons. It's written down and recorded for us. But it encapsulates all of Matthew 5, 6, and 7, those three chapters. We're going to take a look at what we call the Beatitudes, the beginning portion of this. And the way you need to understand this, there's, a, there's an already and a not yet that comes along with this. What I mean by that is these things are already true for us and about us, but they're not yet complete for us. And I'll try to make that clear for you, but I need to go quickly because there's a lot to cover. Matthew chapter five, verse three, Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. First, let's talk about what the word blessed means. The word blessed is actually the word makarios, which always makes me think of the song Macarena. And now you'll be singing it all day. You're welcome. And the whole idea of makarios is it's happy, blessed, or to be envied. So come back there to verse three. Take a look again what Jesus says. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit? Now, the NIV is actually translating for you what Jesus means in this context. How can somebody be poor in spirit and feel blessed? What exactly does Jesus mean? And the root of what Jesus means is that in order to understand that you need a savior, you first have to understand that you are a sinner, that you have a problem that you can't solve on your own. And your spirit is poor not rich. See, you don't need Jesus if you could save yourself. But when you come to the realization you can't save yourself, the kingdom of heaven is right there and available to you through Jesus. Look at verse four. 
Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Brings up a great question. Does that mean like if my dog dies that I'm going to be comforted? Does that mean that if my grandmother passes away or my marriage separates or my company closes, does that mean that God's going to comfort me? And the answer is yes, but remember the already and the not yet. This is not the implication of what Jesus is saying. There's a truth in that. It's absolutely true. And I don't want to take it away from the text, but it's not the implication of what Jesus is saying. So Revelation does tell us one day, Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess when we get to heaven one day and Jesus sets up his eternal kingdom and all evil will be removed from the world and every tear will be wiped from our eyes. There'll be no more crying and no more suffering because the old way is gone and a new way has come. The already and the not yet. That is the not yet. That is yet to come. One day, all of our evils of this world, all of our pain will be comforted. But this text here is talking about mourning for your own sin. When you become broken over your life, when you become broken over your sin, the impact of sin, the impact of what you have done in the world, you will be blessed and you will be comforted by God. And that's a powerful thing. James talks about this in the book of James. He's rebuking the church because they're living in arrogance. They're living a life exactly opposite of this. Their wealth has puffed them up and given them a wrong perspective about the world. And he says, you should grieve, mourn, and wail over your sin and arrogance. Then he goes on, Jesus says in verse five, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. The word meek can mean humble. What, how could being humble, how could being meek give you the earth? And again, what Jesus is laying here is a foundation that he builds on, not just over these next three chapters, but throughout all of his teachings, this is the platform that we stand on for all of them. And essentially, what you can understand here is, see, we live in a world that tells you more power, more might, more success is the way to go. So you cut everybody else out, you, you live in a, a, you know, a dog-eat-dog kind of world, so you better get eaten, otherwise you ain't gonna survive. And Jesus says, no, 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 see, if you wanna be in my kingdom, if you want me to be inside you, if you want to bring the kingdom of heaven to earth, then you live meek. You stop seeking after power. You stop seeking after money. You stop seeking after more. You stop looking out for only number one. And you start living meek and humble here, you'll inherit all of it anyway. Already and not yet. Well, in the not yet, one day you will inherit all of heaven for yourself through Jesus Christ. But already here, you'll actually see the kingdom of God come. Imagine a world where everybody stops striving and undercutting and backstabbing and cheating and lying to get ahead. Imagine a world where everybody said, what do you need? I'm gonna meet it. I wanna be a part of a world like that. Verse six, blessed are those who are hunger and thirst for righteousness for they will be filled. Jesus here is talking about a deep desire to see the right thing done. You ever watch the news and you get upset, you get hurt, you get angry because you long to see the right thing being done already and not yet. Not yet, one day, all evil removed, but already in Jesus Christ, God is bringing that about in you, in you, so that you can have peace in this world. Verse seven, blessed are the merciful for they will be shown mercy. Now, I'm not talking about karma here. It's not like, well, if you're kind to others, others will be kind to you. I'm talking about Jesus goes on in Matthew five, six and seven. He eventually says, if you forgive others to the degree to which you forgive them, God will forgive you. And that's what Jesus is talking about. That's what he's getting to. This idea of God opening up heaven for you. 
Blessed are the pure in heart, you will see God. The word pure here literally means to prune or to refine like with a fire. And the whole idea here is when you have no guile, when you have no hidden motive inside you, you will actually see God's kingdom come in you and through you in this world. And maybe perhaps none of these is more powerful than verse nine. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. God intended for us as salt on the earth to be peacemakers. And in a world right now where everybody wants you to share a perspective, there are people reaching out to me all the time and saying, what's your stance? What's Kingsway's stance on these issues? Pick a side. And I refuse to pick sides unless it sides with God. And that's not always easy. And it's not always popular. There's a story in the Old Testament where Joshua looks up and he sees a soldier in front of him with a sword drawn. And Joshua gets a little anxious. He's like, hey, are you for us? Are you for our enemies? And the angelic being, it's a spiritual being, says neither. I'm not for you or for them. But wait a minute, this is the Israelites. This is Joshua. How can you not be for them if you're an angelic being? He says, no, I'm for the Lord our God. And oh, by the way, you're standing on holy ground. I believe this is Jesus in the flesh and Joshua falls down on his face to worship. See, that's the perspective that God is calling us to have to be peacemakers. I'm not for you. I'm not for them. I'm for him and he loves you and he loves them. How do we get these two together? What do we need to work through? It's Christians who go into war-torn, wrecked places and say, how do we bring healing and forgiveness in places where it looks like there was no hope whatsoever? And then verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. See, we live in a world that says no rules. Nobody gets to tell me what to do. I can do what I want, when I want. Who are you to tell me what to do? And Jesus says, do what I say is right. Do what I say is good, even when it's not popular. And you'll be blessed here and in the world yet still to come. There's one name that comes to mind when I think about these things that it just did this so well. I mean, I, I don't feel like I do all of these well at all, all the time. And there's different times in life where I feel convicted. But this particular person, you'd probably recognize her face. If you're maybe over the age of 30, you probably definitely would, maybe over the age of 20. That's Mother Teresa. Mother Teresa was a nun. And she's passed away now. But she spent her life in ministry serving in, in Calcutta, serving some of the poorest of the poor and the sickest of the sick. She worked with, in a leper colony. And there's so many things. I just started reading kind of a, a biography and even some autobiography of Mother Teresa. She left some journals behind. And what I find fascinating, just some things that have stood out to me about her, is she continued to petition to go and do this work and she kept being told no, but she was, you know, you gotta be a little bit strong in character to push through. Finally, as leadership would change over, she'd keep petitioning and she was finally able to go. And one of her goals was to raise up young ladies who would do the same kind of work and she specifically looked for ladies who had a heart full of joy because the work is hard. Her journals show us that there are times she doubted God. There's so many times she doubted herself that she was ever making a difference. There's times she wanted to quit and she was hurt and she was frustrated. See, we hear stories of success like Mother Teresa and we think to ourselves that they don't have the same doubts and anxieties and fears that we have and that's not it at all. But what she does have is a deep conviction she needed to bring heaven to earth. She had to be the salt of the earth, preserving life here on earth that she fought hard to make it happen. And she raised up young ladies, she said, were full of joy and a little bit of moxie. 
She actually says this, I see God in every human being. When I wash the leper's wounds, I feel I'm nursing the Lord himself. Is it not a beautiful experience? She would go on in another quote and say, I am just a little pencil in God's hand. I didn't put this quote down, but there was this one quote from Mother Teresa where she's constantly aware of her own sin, her own frailty, her inability. She's not super educated. She's a very small woman. She didn't have access to a lot of resources. Most of the time, she gave away what was given to her to meet other people's needs. But she sensed the Lord impress upon her once that that's the exact reason God chose her to be used. Her brokenness, her sinfulness, and her frailty made her perfect because God is the one who would get all the glory. See, the the root of all of this for us is the very fact that we don't accomplish it on our own. Jesus is presenting a different kingdom to us, an upside down kingdom. Don't return hate for hate, return hate with love. Instead of seeking to be served, serve others. It's upside down from what the world says. And the reality is you can't accomplish it on your own. Matthew 5, 13, actually Jesus goes on. He first says, you are the salt of the earth. But the second thing he says is, but if salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? Technically speaking, salt can't lose its saltiness. Sodium chloride, you can't technically separate those two things. You can't do that. The word here, excuse me, for saltiness is actually the word flavor, which gives the interpretation, the understanding if salt loses its flavor, it's, how can it be made salty again? It's kind of obvious what Jesus is saying. Some commentaries, some, some uh, people, scholars, think that it's possible what Jesus is referring to here is the Dead Sea. There are salt mines, and you can actually find these all over the world, even in ancient Rome and Germany and places like that. But the Dead Sea is located right there. The Dead Sea has such a heavy salt content. You can go down there and actually float in an amazing way in the Dead Sea. It's just so dense and thick with salt. All of these tributaries kind of come in and dump into the Dead Sea, but nothing comes out of it. In fact, it's been said that if you have some sort of boil or something on your flesh, you can actually scratch it, get into the Dead Sea, and it'll heal it. It's so strong and overwhelming. Well, what'll happen on the banks of the Dead Sea is the water will evaporate and leave behind these little salt crystals. But the sand on the shores is white as well. And if you were to scoop up a handful of that, you would see the salt mixed with the sand and you can't really tell which is which. Some scholars think this is exactly what Jesus is referring to because he says, if salt lost its saltiness, in other words, I can't tell what it is. What good is it? In fact, he goes on in the last part of Matthew 5, 13. He says, it's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. It's Worth less. If God were to remove you from your school, your neighborhood, your workplace, would anybody notice? 
don't get me wrong. I'm not, I'm not doing this woe is me. Nobody knows is me. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about would your life, would the impact of your life, the absence of your life mean anything in that moment? Let me take a step further. If God were to remove this church on the corner of 10th and Dan Jones, and I don't mean the building, I don't mean the land, I mean if the gathering of people called Kingsway were to be removed from the earth, would Avon and Brownsburg and Plainfield and Danville and west side of Indianapolis, would they even notice we were gone? What if God were to remove all of the churches in our community? We can't afford to let ourselves be good for nothing, to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. We must fight to preserve life at all costs. Jesus goes on in the next few verses and he gives a second analogy, but it means the exact same thing, but it's the analogy of light. And he actually says, you know, you can't hide a city on a hill. Well, Jerusalem sits on a high hill and no matter what angle you come at it from, you could see the city from a long way off. You can't really miss it. That's part of what Jesus is trying to say. But he goes on and he builds that analogy. He says, it's like, you know, if you take a lamp and you light it, where do you put it? You put it on its table in the middle of the room so that the light can disperse and go out in every direction. See, in that day, they didn't have, you know, indoor lights like we're so used to today. So they would light these candles, these lamps, and they would put them in the middle of the room so that the light could illuminate the rest of the room so that you wouldn't trip over whatever furniture might be in the room or whatever it is. You could see that's Jesus' point. He says, you don't light that lamp and stick it in the middle of the room and then cover it up. No, you, you take the cover off and it's right there for all to see. And Jesus says, you, your salt, you, your light, let your good deeds be shown out to the world that everyone would see there's something different about you. There's something in you. See, this is crucial. You can't do this on your own. You can't forgive your enemies on your own. Remember Jesus hanging on the cross, nail pierced hands and feet, skin hanging off, crown of thorns pounded on his head. And the people who did this to him, standing in front of him, mocking him, spitting at him, throwing curses at him. And he looks at heaven, he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. You, you can't get out of a fight with your spouse, with your parents, with your neighbor, with your coworker over some silly thing that they said that you don't agree with over politics or money or the best way to run the company or what you ought to do with your car or vacation. You're fighting and you're up in arms, right? But Jesus, he's looking at his enemies who did real hurt to him and he's saying, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And you can't do that on your own and neither can I. This isn't just about you. I don't have it in me to do that over and over and over again. There has to be something else in me that produces that. And that is Jesus. Go read John 4, John 7. Ah, I think it's Revelation 14. Jesus says, when you come to him, streams of living water will flow out of you. In fact, Revelation towards the end John closes the whole book out with this whole thing. And anybody who's thirsty, come and drink. You ever notice how thirsty salt makes you? You ever notice if you've been out running and you're dehydrated, just how desperately you need a drink? 
That's the point. That when you finally get to the place where what Jesus is saying, the life that Jesus is describing, the kingdom that Jesus is laying before you sounds so desirous to you, you're like, I want to drink from that well. Jesus intends to fill you up, to quench your thirst and to make streams of living water flow out of you. And we know, it says it emphatically, especially in John chapter seven and John chapter eight. There's no question. He's talking about the Holy Spirit producing this life in you. You can't do it on your own. At least you can't sustain it on your own. You need him. I love this quote by Jan Johnson from the book, Renovation of the Heart and Daily Practice. She says this, the road to becoming such a person, a child of light, involves abandoning everything to God. What others think of us, what others' harmful motives might be, fears about what others might do to us, hopes for getting ahead, we come to truly believe that God knows what he's doing and he'll keep on doing it. And that last part is so crucial, so crucial. That trust, that faith, that God knows what he's doing and he'll keep doing it. So therefore, I only have to show up and give him all of me. God, I'm gonna stop chasing after whatever the world tells me I need to be happy and fulfilled. Instead, I'm gonna trust you in this moment. I'm gonna be meek. I'm gonna be humble. I'm gonna be forgiving. I'm gonna be merciful. I'm gonna be generous. I'm gonna be kind. I'm gonna love my enemies the same way that I love myself. I'm gonna pray for my enemies. I'm gonna bless those who curse me. I'm not gonna return a curse. And God, I can't do this on my own but I trust that you'll keep showing up and giving me what I need. Here's my last piece of advice for you. I got this from one of my friends, mentors, a guy named Mark Moore. Mark Moore is a, a, a professor and now he's a teaching pastor at CCV in Arizona. And I was listening to a sermon he did on the Beatitudes and he said, here's the thing. I don't like to talk about all these things that Christians have done and do all over the world. Too many Christians talk. We spend way too much time talking. He said, if I'm gonna talk to a person struggling with God, I'm not gonna look at them and say, oh yeah, well, Christians build hospitals. Oh yeah, well, Christians run in when there's an earthquake. Oh yeah, well, Christians, Christians, Christians. He said, I'm not gonna do that. Because Jesus tells us, don't let your good deeds, uh, don't brag about them on the corners like the hypocrites do. In fact, do the, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Just let your life be the light. Let your life be the salt. In other words, be salt and light. Don't merely talk about salt and light. And far too many Christians spend time talking about, arguing about, whatever their opinion and their perspective of whatever the thing going on today is, instead of just acting in a way that brings the kingdom of heaven to earth. Let me close by making this really, really personal. I realize there are very few out there who are gonna be Mother Teresa's in the world, but don't let me miss this opportunity. I have been sensing, and maybe this is for you, I've been sensing God telling me to put a challenge out there. Maybe this is for you. There are some of you out there that God is calling into full-time ministry, and I don't know who you are. Maybe it's mission work, maybe it's private Christian counseling, or maybe perhaps it's working at a church one day. And maybe this is your challenge right now. And it's time to stop fighting it. It's time to start, stop arguing and get 
to it. But for most of us, living this kingdom life is not just about getting paid to do it like I do. I praise God that I get paid to do what I do. But this is about being a great doctor and a great nurse and a great teacher and a great businessman and a great accountant here in our community and bringing the kingdom of heaven to earth through the way you interact with everyday people being assault. Stop talking about what it means to be assault and go live it. So here's how I'm gonna close in prayer. And I'm gonna ask for God to put on your mind one of those verses. If you need to go back and review them, you do that. Matthew's, Matthew 5, 3 through 5, 12. You go read those and let God imprint on you a name of a person that you need to go be a salt and a light to. Perhaps there's somebody of color in your neighborhood and you need to go serve them and love them in the name of Jesus. Perhaps there's a policeman in your neighborhood and you need to go love them and serve them in the name of Jesus. Perhaps there's a widow or a sick person or a person in need. Instead of judging your neighbors, let's love them in the same way we love ourselves. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, right now, impress on our hearts and on our minds the name of a person, a real person, in our sphere of influence, in our life, you are calling us to be a salt and a light too, to preserve life, to bring your kingdom of heaven to them in a very real way. And then God, give us the courage and the boldness to act on it in Jesus' name, amen.